This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 190 with guest Arlena Allen. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Happy New Year, ass kickers. Happy freaking New Year. It's January 2nd. I hope that you are recovering from any New Year's fun that you had. I hope your holidays were amazing. Maybe you're back to work this week. And guess what today is? It's January 2nd. Obviously, I know that most of you don't listen to this podcast episode the day it comes out, but the day that it's dropping, January 2nd is my book's birthday. Wow, it's been a long time coming, right? It's been a labor of love, and I am really trying to lean into the joy and pride I have about this book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, is officially in bookstores today, I should say. It's been available for pre-order for a long time. I know some of you have gotten your copy already who ordered it online. If you jump into at Barnes and Noble today. It's on the front table. So I would love for you to take a picture and tag me on Instagram or Facebook. It's very, very exciting. And I'm, I'm really trying to revel in it instead of being all in the minutia of all of the things I need to do and crossing things off the list and all that stuff. This is a really big deal. And I thank you so much for just your excitement around it. I'm so incredibly honored that you all show up here every week to listen to these podcasts podcast episodes and share the excitement with me of this project. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My mission in 2018 is really the same as it was in 2008. I can't believe it's been, it's, I'm going on my 10 year anniversary from starting this whole thing. So your kick-ass life was officially born in 2010, but for two years before that, I was blogging under a different URL. And I started that because I wanted to feel less alone and I wanted other people to feel less alone. That was really my mission of just telling my story. And I thought to myself, there has got to be other people out there that feel the same way that I do. Isn't there? Please tell me that I'm not the only one. And sure enough, I wasn't the only one. And that was my mission then. It's still my mission today to make people feel less alone in their struggle, in their heartbreak, in their joys, in their celebrations, and just in life and really figuring out what your kick-ass life means to you because it can be different for everyone. I get that question all the time. What does it mean to live your kick-ass life? I'm like, whatever it is for you, it can be so many different things. So thank you, all of you. In this new year, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your time with me. I know how precious and important that is. I do not take that lightly at all. Thank you for sharing in the excitement of this book and thank you for buying a copy of it. I am doing something special this week. For anyone who purchases a copy and also leaves a review on amazon.com from now until January 9th for every Amazon review. I'm going to give $10 to best buddies international best buddies international is an organization that is close to my heart. I volunteered with them. They were my first charity that I ever volunteered for in my twenties. They're an organization dedicated to helping people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. They're helping end the stigma and they do things like help them find employment and create one-on-one friendships with them and help them with life skills. It's interesting that it was 
such an important thing for me back then. And then I end up with a child on the autism spectrum. So then and now, this is an important organization to me. There were, are so many out there that are important to me. It's not the only one. But for this particular project, I am choosing Best Buddies to donate money to. So again, from now, January 2nd, 2018 until January 9th, this whole week for every Amazon review that people leave me, I will give $10 to Best Buddies international. There'll be a link in the show notes on how to do that. If you've never left an Amazon review, if it's a little bit confusing, um, we will leave instructions down there for you. The show notes are at yourkickasslife.com slash 190. So thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing that for me. I also wanted to add one more thing about what's coming up this week. I am in New York City for a book signing, Brooklyn, to be more exact, on January 6th. And from there, I run over to Chicago, then San Diego, Portland, Green. North Carolina, and then Vienna, Virginia. All of those links are over in the show notes. I would love to see you there and get to hug you and sign your book and take pictures and all that fun stuff. So head on over to the show notes to grab all of that information. So we have another recovery episode for you today. I think that this is our sixth recovery episode. Thank you for those of you who have listened, even though maybe you're not in recovery, you don't struggle with addictions, but you probably know someone who does. That's what these stories are for. It's about shining the light on addiction and recovery and telling our stories. What was really interesting to me when I first got sober and started telling my story, I had a handful of people tell me, you don't look like an alcoholic. <laughs> and I'm like, what does an alcoholic look like? I am dedicated to sharing the stories and putting a face on addiction, a face that might not look like the myths and stereotypes that we think of. Tell us the, the story, but when did your drinking cross the line into alcoholism? Like, what was that specific turning point that made you decide you needed to get help and get sober? Oh, that's such a great question. And I just wanted to say thank you for having me. I think sobriety and recovery, you know, being able to have a platform to talk about this is sort of like my life's purpose. So thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to share. You know, it was kind of funny, you know, when you asked me about the when did I cross the line, I was... I've been in sales for a very long time and, you know, sales is a very drinking culture, you know, and, um, being an ambitious person and in sales, it's very like goal oriented, very results driven. So everybody around me was drinking a lot. So I didn't realize that at some point I was crossing the line. I started blacking out. Mm you know, I would be out drinking with customers and coworkers and stuff. And then, you know, then next day I'd wake up and I'd be like, Oh my God, I, how did I get home last night? You know, or you walk back into the restaurant like the next day or, or whatever. And the bartender's like super excited to see you. And you're like, I don't even remember you. Oh my <laughs> you know? gosh. Yeah. I mean, and things like that, you know, I, I, I was fortunate that I didn't ever get arrested. I don't know how I never got arrested. I mean, I certainly drove drunk all the time, you know, and it's, I am so grateful nothing ever bad happened. I've, I've heard stories since I stopped drinking and got into recovery about people who, you know, have taken other people's lives or had horrible consequences. I actually had a boyfriend that was a, a policeman. So I used to use his business card as my get out of jail free card. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> It was awful, but sometimes they would follow me home so that I could get my car. It was, anyway, it was a mess. But um, I decided I crossed the line when 
you know, it was just I got sick and tired of being sick and tired. I had been living in the self-help section of Barnes & Noble. I had taken the Tony Robbins, you know, this is a long time ago. It was like a cassette. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, I was up, you know, miserable one night being like, oh, why is my life a shambles? And I was up late at night and saw a Tony Robbins thing. And but no, that didn't work either. That wasn't that wasn't the issue. And and I just got to that point where I wanted to stop drinking and I was doing other things, too, but I just couldn't stop any of it. I grew, you know, I come from a very nice family. Neither of my parents displayed any of this kind of behavior. There was no abuse in my household. It wasn't anything like that. I just got to the point where. I knew that my drinking was interfering with my aspirations. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, and let's be honest. I mean, I felt horrible about who I was. I couldn't maintain relationships. I would, you know, I had like these two, I had these two alter egos. When I started drinking, I was either wimpy Wendy or badass Betsy because I was either, <laughs> I was either fighting or crying. I mean, listen, nobody likes the crying girl at the bar, right? Yes, I was I, that girl too. Did you? Did yes, you it? it was either crying or my ex used to say, I feel like you're always one drink away from catastrophe. Like, and, and it was either like crying or fighting, one drink crying away. Crying or fighting. And then, you know what, Andrea, I decided, I realized that even my alter egos had an alter ego because occasionally slutty Karen would come out. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so, you know, I'd be lying if I, was, if I would say that that wasn't a part of it, too, you know? My tagline, I joke around, but if it was in a bottle, a bag, or blue jeans, I was doing it. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. So anyway, I, you know, all these things, you know, finally came to a head when I was about 25. I was, I finally had gotten this, I call him a hostage, but my boyfriend, our relationship was falling apart and it was behind my drinking. And he thought he was what I thought my ideal was. And I was losing him and things were not going well at work. My commissions were taking a nosedive and finally everything just kind of came to a head. And that's when I reached out for help. And I had two of my customers had been in recovery and each one of these guys, very nice, decent guys, they were both involved in 12 step programs and they sort of started breaking down, you know, what the 12 steps meant. And, you know, they started describing what alcoholism is, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. And, you know, they talked about the powerlessness and unmanageability. And, you know, that really all made sense to me. And I was just, you know, that saying that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Mm -hmm. That's what happened. I just got to the place where I was, I was ready. You know, I had, I had been seeking, I had been seeking, you know, like through the Tony Robbins and all the self-help books, but I couldn't find the answer. And it wasn't until I got to a 12 step program that, and started going to meetings and meeting other people who were learning how to be in recovery, that things started to change. There's one thing that you said that was in my experience, and I'm wondering if it's for people listening too. So I think it might be important to point out. And I'm super curious what your experience was too. So when it's the word unmanageable, and I had such a hard time with that in the beginning of my recovery in 12 step programs, and that made me feel like I didn't belong there. Because to me, like my life hadn't become unmanageable. Like, wait, there's, I'm, I'm getting there <laughs> where it was unmanageable. But I, I'm like, be- really? Because it's such a general word, and I think that when we hear that word, we think, you know, 
you know, job, losing your job, losing your relationship or things starting to fall apart, your relationships, career, et cetera. And that wasn't the case for me. And I remember being in one particular meeting and it was like a book study meeting and Mm -hmm. it was a small group of us. And there was one guy that said, I don't know about all of you, but when I started recovery and sobriety, I was totally desperate. And Everyone was like nodding their head and I was like, uh, no, I hadn't gotten there yet. Like I didn't want to get there. Like that's why. And then I'm like, ah, because everyone's nodding their head and I'm not. And, and it was the yeah. same thing with the whole unmanageable thing. And here's the thing that I want to point out that it took me a long time to realize because I even relapsed and that was part of it because I didn't feel like I belonged there. And then so then that made me realize, think, well, surely I'm not an alcoholic if I don't, if my life is still kind of manageable. Like my career was starting to take off. My marriage was good. You know, we had just moved to a new state to buy our dream home. And and like all of these things were pretty good. And what was unmanageable, (laughs) it took me, again, took me a while to realize this, was I didn't know how to cope with life from an emotional level. And that's, for me, what was unmanageable. I had stuffed my emotions for decades. It wasn't even years. Like, at that point, I was 36, I think, when I got sober. And I never learned how to deal with my emotions. I had learned, for me, it started with codependence in my teen years, and then it was love addiction. And then when I healed from those things, then it was drinking for me. And so I just wanted to point that out for anyone listening who's like, but I have a great job, but my marriage is pretty good, you know? How are you coping with like when life gets really hard, do you run to the bottle? Because that's not managing your life very well. And that's, it took me, again, it took me a long time to realize that. No, I think that's really interesting that you mentioned that. I mean, I know very early on, I heard that when you go to meetings, it's important to listen for the similarities, not the differences, mm-hmm. you know, and I really, you know, coping what you said about, you know, coping with your emotions, you know, I really resonate with that because drinking and, you know, I used to smoke a lot of, you know, weed and stuff. And that was my coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. I did not learn. I had big feelings when I was growing up. My mom did not know how to deal with me. Right. And so yeah. I would all my feelings, but you know, the funny thing about feelings is that they get stronger over time. It's like, you can't ignore them forever. You know, that saying that time heals all wounds. It's a lie. You know, That's the pain, total bullshit. Waits, yeah, <laughs> total bullshit. And it's such a lie because the pain waits until you're ready to deal with it or it becomes so big that you can't ignore it. Yeah. And for me, I just, you know, just learning how to cope with my emotions was so important. And that's what I learned in those 12 step meetings is I was desperate to be different. I was desperate to be better. I didn't want to have to, it was for me, really, it was about, I really, I desperately wanted to quit drinking and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. So you actually, tried on your own? Yeah, actually, that's not true. I actually stopped drinking five months before I showed up to a 12 step program, but I was continuing on the marijuana maintenance program as okay. they call it. <laughs> I've heard that's so pretty I common. Still, yeah. So I still was using that to cope with my feelings. It wasn't until, you know, and I'm kind of greedy. Like I want, I want the best out of life. I want the most out of life. And even though I hadn't really lost anything, I felt like I was missing out, mm-hmm. you know, and I was in a lot of emotional pain to be frank. I mean, I can't pretend like everything, everything wasn't working for me, you know, so for me, you know, while some people don't and, and listen there, they say that there's many types of like alcoholism, there's, 
you know, there's like the skid row kind and then there's the silk sheet kind. But at the end of the day, it's the feelings that are all the same, right? right. It's the feeling of the feelings of worthlessness or, you know, what drove me insane was repeating the same pattern. I would find myself in the same place and might be like, how did I get here? here? Uh How did I get here again? And what I had to acknowledge is that somewhere along my decision making process, there was an error in my judgment and I didn't know where it was. Everybody has blind spots, right? Because I can tell you that at each step in my decision-making process, each decision felt sane and it felt right and it made sense to me. Otherwise I would have made a different decision. But yet it was like running on a track, ending up in the same spot every time. And I'm like, how did I get here again? So I was grateful to have this process where it was a process of writing that helped me like break it down, Uh you know, to get very specific about, you know, where my, and, and to how to handle my pain. So, you know, what was I resentful about, you know, what exactly get really specific. I don't know about you, but like when I was growing up and I'd be arguing with my mom, she'd put like 10 things on the table. And after a while, I didn't know what we were arguing about anymore. <laughs> you know, you're going to get into these circular arguments and it's like, what are we fighting about again? I don't even remember. Mm-hmm. But it was, this process was so amazing to me because it was the first time I was able to put it out on paper and identify patterns. And then The miracle was that I was able to see my part, that I had a part in this, that I wasn't a victim, that I had been making decisions that were like self-centered or self-seeking or selfish. You know what I mean? Like, and then just, and then, and then the magic was, is that to be able to get input from others as to what else to do. Mm Because sometimes I was just doing what I knew to do because I didn't know what else to do. Right. And then people would be like, Hey, why don't you try this? Or why don't you try that? You know, just having someone I trusted Somebody who had what I wanted, a successful career, a successful marriage, children, you know, I was emulating, you know, I was getting coached is what I was getting, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that, so you mentioned writing and, and that's my next question is, is what process did you use to, to break free from addiction was, I'm assuming writing was a big part of it. Writing was a big part of it. And I grew up in the church, but I don't consider myself religious anymore. Uh-huh. I do respect and draw from religion, but I don't really practice any one thing. So having a higher power, as they say, has been, I'm a seeker, you know, Mm -hmm. I I realize that there's so much information out there and I don't, if I'm repeating a pattern, I, I, there's a problem in my decision-making process somewhere. So initially the whole 12 step writing process was enlightening for me. It was amazing. And that really kind of cleared the path, but it also left me wanting, and there's so much out there. I mean, I studied A Course in Miracles and, you know, meditation and yoga and all those things added to like a daily practice. So it's just been, and so it's been, I've been sober for clean and sober for 23 years. And so from the time that I got sober to now, I've never stopped because every time I either address the 12 step writing process of, you know, sorting things out or doing, you know, a meditation series or a yoga series, I am changed. And when I'm different, when I reapproach these writing exercises, I get something else out of it because I'm different. I'm different every time, you know, it's like a spiral. It's like, as we continue to, you know, practice these or utilize these tools and writing exercises, we change and develop, Mm -hmm. right? We get something different out of it every time. Yes. I agree with that. I agree with that. You did repeating exercises. Yeah, it's been, gosh, well, 
I started with 12-step programs and luckily for me, and I've, I've interviewed different people, you know, I've had some people on here who don't like it, it's not their jam, and other people who... It's not the only way. Save their life and just, and then kind of everyone in between as well. And so for me, my dad got sober when I was 18 and used the program. That's what he Mm -hmm. referred to it as back then. And so I knew about it and I knew that it had helped him a lot. So it was a really easy choice for me to walk into that. And I know it can be a different experience for different people. How long did you go to meetings or try to? I went for probably at least two years and then Mm -hmm. we moved. And then when I, we moved to North Carolina and then I went. Were you, sorry to interrupt. Were you already married? Yes. Oh, okay. I had been married for, let's see, we got married in 2008 and I got sober in 2011. Okay. So that's been interesting. I can. So you were already married with kids and. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was, you know, I drank at our wedding. I had a really hard time. Well, not so much with my first pregnancy to not drink with my second pregnancy. It was harder because I think that I had already like kind of crossed that line and was white knuckling it through most of that pregnancy. And I, I just didn't, I didn't find it. Long story short, we live in in the rural South and we love it here, but I I don't so totally feel like I fit in and I really didn't feel like I fit in to the, in the meetings here. And I did try a few different ones. And at that point Mm -hmm. I kind of felt like I didn't need it. I had so many other tools and resources that I I feel like I had gotten everything that I could get. And Mm -hmm. I also knew that if something happened that I could go to a meeting, you know, and if I, if I really felt like I needed it, I could go and I could always feel like I was in a way coming home. So Mm -hmm. I feel good about that. Good. Yeah. And so after you, you know, found your feet and you were able to stop drinking, did you like stop drinking before you went to meetings or it was during that two years that you were able to sort of like be relieved of, you know, they call it like an obsession. Yeah, it was, I'm trying to think back. I quit drink. What happened was here's, here's the quick trajectory. So it was a, so it was February of 2011. It was a Super Bowl party and it was one of my friends, also her birthday party. It was like a day drinking day. Remember those? Oh yeah. <laughs> God. I got so drunk and told, broke down that night and told my husband that I think I need to get to get sober. And he was like, okay. And, and my sobriety story is nobody really knew. My mom said that there was like one Christmas, it must've been the Christmas, right? A couple months before that, where she kind of noticed, and I was the only one drinking and mm-hmm. noticed that I was kind of drinking a lot. My husband said, he's like, yeah, there were some nights where I heard you pouring another glass of wine. And I thought, hasn't she already had enough? But it, nobody was like, you know, it wasn't a mess. And so, so that was February. And then let's see, about a month or so later, I called my friend Courtney, who's been on this podcast, and I told her, I said, I think I need to get sober. And she had, I don't know, many years of really strong recovery. So then she said, okay, why don't you try for, but I was still kind of unsure, but I, I was sure, but you know, <laughs> she's like, yeah. try for 30 days and see what happens, you know, just mm-hmm. like see what comes up. And so I did that and it was awful. I lasted six days and was like, fuck the shit. Like, no, I'm, I'm not, I need to drink. I have two toddlers at home. It was rough. It was super rough. And so that was probably like March or April. And then that was when we moved. We left California, moved to Utah. And then we moved to Utah. And at that time, we first moved in with my mom and my stepdad because we were trying to, you know, find out where we wanted to live. And and I poured a glass of wine in a coffee mug at like three o'clock in the afternoon because obviously I didn't want I didn't want to do it in front of my mom. 
Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, shit. Like, this is not good. And so I, I got sober. Like, and pretty much to answer your question, I started going to meetings. And I think, like, my very first meeting was, like, my day one. And uh-huh. and then I had, like, five months of sobriety, had one relapse that included NyQuil and vanilla extract because I wasn't sure if I was an alcoholic. Turns out I am. <laughs> and then that was it. Then it was – that was September 26th. 2011 that I had that one relapse and then yeah six years later wow that's amazing yeah no I think it's amazing you know and I've seen people get sober in all different kinds of ways and you know some people do it through like celebrate recovery or like they go to church and Mm -hmm. and so they're like all different kinds but there's I think uh, the 12-step programs are really for people who are it's like I've seen people actually went to high school with a girl who died recently. She had been sober for 13 years uh-huh. and she's drinking again. Oh, and no. she, she had four kids Two the little ones were twins. I think they were like eight years old. She just could not stop. And she was one of those alcoholics that just, anyway, she died from alcohol poisoning her, Jesus. her family. Yeah. Her family came home. Those are the her. story. Yeah. Those are the stories that make me like, it, I can't go back out. I absolutely, yeah. I cannot drink again. And, you know, to answer your question that you asked, I don't think I answered, you were talking about, you know, the obsession. And for me, what, what happened is, was I quit drinking and the obsession fairly quickly lifted, but then I was obsessed with not drinking. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, listen, they say that's very common that people that with addictive personalities switch addictions. Yeah. I was like, I look at me not drinking. I want to go to this thing and I'm going to not drink. So it was, that was, but it wasn't as infuriating, you know, it wasn't right. as, yeah. it wasn't heavy, I feel like, but that happened. That was fine. And there's, and there's only, I could probably count on one hand, how many instances over the last six years that I've thought about like uh, that I've seriously considered drinking. I'll have like the fleeting thought. I think that's feel like that's different, but where I've seriously considered it and, and it's like, you be okay this time or yeah, I, it, but it's gone quickly. Like it's gone quickly because I have the tools to do it. I think, I think what I want people to know is that whatever recovery method works for you. And I've said this in other podcast episodes on this. However, mm-hmm. know that there is a difference between sobriety and recovery. Quitting drinking is just Absolutely. really like a small part of the equation. Yeah. Uh, that gosh, I'm so glad you said that because that is huge. I mean, just because you're not drinking doesn't mean that you're recovered, right? Mm-hmm. So recovery is really about, and for me, it's about recovering your, our whole selves, right? It's not just about, you know, focusing on the good parts of ourselves and making those better. It's really acknowledging that, you know, we're just human beings and we have shortcomings and that we can accept even our frailty, our human frailties and our yeah. character defects. One thing I really did want to share, and and I'm actually writing about this in a book, it's called You Spot It, You Got It. The basic premise of this, and this is the way to identify your blind spots and really really grow in recovery, is that, you know, there's this saying, Dan Millman wrote this book, uh, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, a long time ago, and he wrote the rules for being human. And one was, is that you can't love or hate something about somebody else unless it's something you love or hate about yourself. And that can go both in the positive and in the negative, right? And so over the years, I have found that if I'm willing to, if I'm willing and able to set my pride and ego aside, I can use this as a method of transformation. And the way it goes down is like this. So for instance, I recently had a situation come up with somebody in my life who was very challenging. I mean, we're just, this this woman and I are just button heads, mm-hmm. right? She, an alpha female. I'm an alpha female. I'm very strong in, in my views and opinions. 
So, but we're like fun, but I, you know, I'm, I'm able to work with other alpha females. I actually really love, you know, when you, when you have the right mindset, I think together we're like unstoppable. However, there are some people who are just unwilling to receive information and, and grow. And it's not like collaborative anyway. So I'm struggling with this woman and I'm just so frustrated with her and she's starting to take up space in my head. Mm-hmm. It's like, find that I'm obsessing about her running scenarios and conversations in my mind. And if she says this, I'm going to say this. And, and listen, I've, I've been sober long enough and practicing this process long enough that I don't let that go on for very long. Once I realize that it's eating me and taking up space in my head, I go, okay, let's see. She's obviously reflecting something back to me that I don't like about myself. So I'll write down, I'll just go ahead and assign labels to her. I go, okay, well, she's controlling. She's I'm not taking in information. She's being very selfish. She's, you know, you know, in denial and, you know, I'll just assign a bunch of labels. And then I look at that list and I go, where am I practicing those behaviors? (laughs) And it's, you know, and that's why I say it requires an ability to lay your pride and ego aside because at the end of the day, Andrea, I want to be better. Mm-hmm. I really do. I really am striving to be my best self. And if I can humble myself to look at this list and go, okay, where am I being selfish? Well, with this woman, I'm trying to assert my agenda just as strongly as she's trying to assert her agenda. And what's behind all her controlling? Well, she's probably in a lot of fear. You know, right. I'm coming some good ideas. I'm threatening her credibility. I'm threatening her financial security. I'm threatening her, you know, standing in the, in the company. I'm friends with the CEO, you know, maybe she feels threatened, you know, and then my heart starts to soften. I can be like, okay, well I get to this place of empathy. And when I'm at a place of empathy and I can see that, you know, all her, you know, the character defects or whatever you want, human frailties, she's being human. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I understand where she's coming from. My heart can soften towards her. And as I can be, you know, practice patience, love and tolerance with her, then I can practice patience, love and tolerance with myself because I have a a mentor in my life. She will occasionally ask me, it's like, she's throwing down the gauntlet. She's like, can you love your unlovable parts? And sometimes the answer is no, but the goal is to always try to say yes. Mm -hmm. Right. So as I see these things like the controlling and being in denial and listen, I got to tell you, it's very difficult to know when you're in denial. I mean, isn't that the, you know, the essence of denial is that you can't see it. Yeah. You know, and I would imagine she wants to be the best person she can be, right? I want to be the best person I can be. I'm I'm really trying. And as someone who is trying, I know it's still hard, you know, and she doesn't have any tools. She doesn't have, you know, the one thing about struggling with addiction is that either you confront and face all your stuff, you know, like, you know, know, fear, you face everything and recover or fuck everything and run. What are you going to (laughs) do? what are you going to do? And I don't want to run anymore. I don't want to have, I I don't don't want there to be anything in life that I'm so afraid of that I can't face it and deal with it. So that's been my process for recovery. And this is kind of something that goes beyond like 12 steps. This is just like trying to be human trying to be a good human. Right. Just trying to be a good person. Yeah. Yeah. Yes to everything you said. And I, and I think that also in my experience, whether you're talking about recovering from an addiction or whether you're talking about just trying to do life better and be a better person mm-hmm. in any realm of personal development, what you just described is 
exercise. And that is strengthening a muscle that we at one point in our life did not have. And it starts with self-awareness and it's Absolutely. like you were saying, like shining the light on the parts of ourselves that we deem as unlovable, that we wish that we were better at, or and even, I think for some people have shame around. I mean, I know when I, in the beginning of my personal development journey, this is even before I got sober, I was learning so much about how I used to behave mm-hmm. a lot around, especially around love addiction. I was, I was not well. And my behaviors were just like, I, those are the hardest stories for me to tell really. I'm I'm open about all my stories. And those are the ones where I just like cringe and my stomach is in knots when I'm telling them. And when I moved away from that and, and, you know, turned my head around and looked back and I would, it was like this graveyard of, ugh. and I was ashamed of how I behaved and really put that part of me and tried to like, you know, kill and bury her. And mm-hmm. I realized and I'm like, that's not really that healthy. You know, I needed to forgive myself. I needed to love that part of me that was in so much pain and confusion and hurt and expectations that weren't being met from other people and especially of myself. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any tools. I had zero tools and life was coming at me and I was growing up and I was not well. And that was a huge shift in my own experience. And I think that helped me years later when I did walk into sobriety from alcohol is mm-hmm. okay. You know, there are parts of myself that I'm not proud of and that's okay. Everybody has those. Every single person Everybody. listening to this podcast has those parts of herself. Absolutely. It can be a hard pill to swallow. And I just, I urge everyone out there to, and also I think this is sort of tricky, Arlena. Like what, what about you? I think that sometimes, especially in the fourth step, what you were talking about before. And for those people that don't know, it's you make a list of resentments and then throughout this process, you realize what your part is in it. And so, and and you, you mentioned that before, Mm -hmm. I feel like some people might look at that and put all of the blame on themselves. And Mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of that. (laughs) No, it's not. Well, listen, that's out of balance. Right. And and I think that's why it's so important to do this with, you know, they call it a sponsor, but, or a mentor or a coach. Listen, I don't care who you do it with, but you shouldn't be doing this process by yourself Mm -hmm. because the instinct is to then go into out of balance in the other direction and say, it's all my fault. Mm -hmm. Right. Some people start out with it's all their fault and then end up with it's all my fault. And both are wrong because they're completely out of balance. Right. I remember just before I got sober, I read this book called uh, The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. And the one message that really struck me like a thunderbolt was that in every relationship, there's a 50-50 shared responsibility, you know, and that's really a, a balanced way of looking at it. Listen, I never would have come to that conclusion on my own. You know, it's either all your fault or it's all my fault. Uh-huh, you know? uh-huh. And and so the, the four step process was a way of sorting it out. What is mine and what is not mine? And if I was tempted in the final part of the four step is, you know, what was my part? If the temptation is to take all the blame, there's somebody else with a more objective perspective that can say, well, some of this was your fault, but not all of that. Yeah. And I think that's so important that, you know, and that's the essence of recovery is that we need each other. We need each other because it's like, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, but it works the other way too. When the teacher is ready, the student appears. Mm -hmm. 
it's this idea of service that, and I'm, you know, and I really love the work that you do because you're doing work of service. You know, you're giving it away. You're enlightening other people. It's with compassion and it creates this connection, right? You talk about removing the shame and, you know, we need a safe place to be really honest that we're not going to be shamed about what we did. And it creates this connection. There's a great TED talk. It says everything that you know about addiction is wrong. And, and the essence of his message is that, you know, people that are in addiction, they isolate. Mm-hmm and they withdraw and they we start telling ourselves these horrible things about ourselves that aren't necessarily true but in the darkness of isolation our mind is an interesting tool the the subconscious mind will believe anything that you tell it mm-hmm. and for whatever reason we default to negative right we start yeah, telling ourselves we have a negative bias a negative bias exactly and you know, it's so important to connect with somebody else who will say, hey, you know what, that's not the truth. I see other things about you that are amazing and wonderful. Let's focus on that, too. So it's a balanced perspective. Mm-hmm. It is. And I, I just want to underscore for everybody listening what you were saying about community. And I think that's such a great part of 12 Start Programs is that there's a community. It's free. And mm-hmm you can walk the path of recovery with people who have walked that path before you and you can get the support that you might need. But which brings me to my next question. And I'm really curious what your thoughts are about this. And and we've, we've sort of danced around this topic of shame and I'm a firm believer that many of us drink because we have shame. It's sort of like the root cause of it. And there's, you know, other ancillary things too, but it's rooted in shame. And then we get sober and because of, and this is, something I've really struggled with too, because I'm going to say it, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I understand why there needs to remain anonymous. So I don't go on Facebook and say like, hey, I was at a meeting and my boss was there. It's so awesome. Like tag that person. Like, no, no, no. You know, you don't, don't, don't. Because we still unfortunately live in a culture where there is is shame and stigma around it. But here's, here's what I really struggled with is like, okay, we drink because we have shame. And then we get sober and find this community that we are kind of like banished to the basements of churches. And there's still shame. Like, I don't, I, I believe, when was it created? 1935? Was that? Yeah, early 30s. Yeah. It was a long time ago. And I think that it has changed. Our world and our culture has changed so much. And I think that it needs to be reformed, but it probably never will be because the founders I, are no longer with us. And the whole, like, no one speaks for AA. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. And I know there was a very popular documentary that came out called The Anonymous People which personally I loved and said many of the things that I wanted to say. So what is your take on, on everything I just said? Well, okay. So I am speaking out of school a little bit because listen, I have a podcast that's that's all all about recovery, right? Mm -hmm. The ODAT chat podcast is all about recovery. And I'm, I went into this, knowing that I was going to piss off a lot of people. Right. You know, and I did it with eyes wide open, you know, and you know, the people from my community have been largely supported and it's a very thin veil on my podcast. I mean, I'm like, I refer to 12 step programs all the time, but we talk about meeting. Listen, it's a thin veil, right? I right. basically myself as a member of Alcoholics Well, let me, let me stop you for a second. For people that don't know that aren't familiar, can you kind of highlight the quote unquote rules and guidelines of like what we are not supposed to do if we are members of Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, you don't want to embarrass anybody else, right? Like some people, when they first start getting, okay, let me just back up one step further. The whole, if you read the big book of alcoholics, it's called Alcoholics Anonymous as a book. Everyone calls it the big book if you're in recovery. 
And one of the traditions is that you won't uh, reveal your anonymity at the level of press, radio, or film. And what that means is you don't publicly say, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason for that in the book it talks about is because in the very beginning, there were so few people who were members of Alcoholics Anonymous that they would be overwhelmed by requests for help. People, there were there were so few people that if you said that you were in recovery, these people who stood up to say that they were in recovery or found a way to, you know, break that alcohol addiction, they were so overwhelmed with uh, requests for help that they needed to remain anonymous. It wasn't just because that it would limit their prospects for employment. Mm-hmm. It's really twofold. It was there were too many, there were too few to handle all the requests, and the other was that the stigma would prevent an ability to earn an income. Yep. Listen, those two things are not the issue today. Right. For me personally, I think that's super outdated. And look at all the celebrities who get outed all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so I started the pod, my podcast because I felt like we should be telling our own stories of recovery. You know, like you said, like there's many different kinds of people who struggle with alcoholism. It's not just like the skid row drunk, right. you know, it's the high bottom drunk and there's every shade of gray in between. You know, so there needs to be many different avenues for people to be able to recover at whatever level that you feel comfortable with. It is not the only way, mm-hmm. you know, it's a great way. And I, you know, I still go to meetings and I sponsor women and it's just been a place for me to, and I feel very comfortable there. You know, I, whatever it's like, but I don't, I don't have any judgment at, towards people who don't feel the need to go there. You know, it's like you've maintained your recovery, right? Mm-hmm. Over six years. And are you completely abstinent or totally? Yep. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. So you didn't, you don't like, you've been able to maintain your sobriety and you haven't needed to go to meetings and do the whole thing. That's not the case for everybody. Right. You know, so, but that's, it doesn't mean that one is better or the other is better. But to answer your question, I I feel like there is a place for anonymity. I understand the purpose is that so, because people are so full of shame when they show up and then, you know, they need like a safe place to be able to air out all their dirty laundry or whatever. Yeah. They need to hear, like, I understand that there is a time and a place for that, right? But I'm not anonymous about my recovery. And over the years, I've had people reach out to me and say, hey, I know that, you know, like, oh, when I have an anniversary, I'll, you know, people give me sobriety chips. They're like, it looks like a little poker chip, but it'll have the circle and the triangle, Mm -hmm. which means the circle means constant and the triangle means change. And typically there's like a Roman numeral in the inside and Anyway, when I get one for my, you know, recovery anniversaries, I'll like post a picture of it and be like, Hey, I'm so grateful, blah, 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 23 years, whatever. And, you know, so people that I work with, you know, and I'm in sales, right? So every once in a while I'll get, I'll see somebody from like, I go, I'm going to save a seat for you because yeah. <laughs> you are way out of line. You know, people come up to me and it's just like, it's a way for me to be of service and give back what was so freely given to me. But I'm very clear that, you know, if I wasn't kind of public about it, that I wouldn't be able to be of service to others. And that's really what I want to do. So I agree with you. I think it's outdated and people out us all the time. I, I would rather just take control of the situation and be able to present it and position it the way I want to, which is without shame, you yeah. know, and, and I know you do a lot of studies. I know you're a fan of Brene Brown and when, her stuff came out. I was super into it and it just fit perfectly with the whole recovery 
you know, we feel bad about stuff that we do when we're drinking, but you know, when you're that loaded, when you're super drunk, I mean, you are not in your right mind and we do some crazy things. Right. Well, and I think that too, I have a lot of women that listen to this podcast that are mothers. And I think that the Mm -hmm. stigma against Mm -hmm. alcoholic mothers is a unique one. And, you know, because good moms aren't supposed to be drunks, but yet we live in a culture that encourages us to have, you know, bladders of wine in our bras and take thermoses of wine to the park. And I mean, it's like, I could go on and on. Like, don't get me started on that. Like we celebrate this drunk mother day drinking and, oh, it just, so I, I think that, yeah, personally, I, I don't think that airing your story on a blog or a podcast is for everyone, but Mm -hmm. I think that if someone makes that choice, I want to live in a world where it is not, shameful to do so. It's, I just, this struck me one time I was at a meeting, I was early in sobriety and this meeting was at a church, which many of them are. And Mm -hmm. there was a man there that I didn't recognize. And he was kind of like bustling around the front area of the church. And I was sitting in the kind of lobby in a chair waiting. I was probably early. I always am. And he (laughs) said, he kind of looked twice at me and he goes, are you waiting to talk to pastor so-and-so? And I said, no, I'm here for the AA meeting. And he paused and he goes, you don't look like an alcoholic. (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) I was so stunned. And like, I could not come up with a witty response. I don't think I, I'm sure I said something, but and and I just was like, holy shit. Like there's still people who don't get it. And that for me was like, I have to come out with my story because I am the face of alcoholism. I am an addict, like a straight up and down addict. I (laughs) completely identify. I know I've had some people on this podcast that don't identify with, with that label or identity. I completely do. And by the way, I don't think that you need to have that identity in, in order to get sober and practice recovery. But to me, that just was a huge sign from the universe, from God saying like, you need to tell your story publicly. And I can't tell you personally, I think that Bill W is looking down on us. You know, he's the creator of, of Alcoholics Anonymous and saying like, good job guys. Like, <laughs> please tell yeah. stories. Like I've had so many women reach out and say either your recovery series helped me get sober or I found other podcasts through yours or your story helped me get sober. Those emails bring me to my knees when someone, I, I still get them, you know, like I just celebrated a year of sobriety and I'm a mom of two little ones. Thank you so much. And I'm like, if I would have complied by the, you know, like don't out yourself, <laughs> who knows? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't. Listen, I wasn't anonymous about my drinking. I'm not going to be anonymous about my recovery. True story. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there. It's so funny that people are so hung up on the word alcoholic. You know, I've had. I remember telling this guy at work, you know, sharing with him about, and he goes, Hey, don't say that too loud or don't tell too many. And I was like, Really? Even now? And he was a young guy. Yeah. It was like old dude that was like, Oh, don't you don't look like an alcoholic? It's like, Well, what is an alcoholic? What do you think an alcoholic looks like? You know. If we're not open about our recovery, then how are people, it's like, if we're not honest about who we are and the, our struggles, then how is everybody supposed to know? Right. Right. You know, we're not, you know, alcoholics are not trench coat street, you know, paper bag. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, that's not what an alcoholic is. I think that that is a very, very small percentage. And I think that the majority of us 
are like us, you know, like we have regular lives and we, you probably wouldn't know. The only thing that might tip you off is that we might have a little bit too much to drink at the Christmas party and things like that. But I think that the majority of, especially women are either drinking alone or drinking, you know, girls night out and drink too much and are really lonely and just don't know how to cope with their life and all of those things. So yeah. You know what? And don't you think that that's really at the core of it? You talked early on about coping with emotions, you know, and I think that as we, you know, we don't know how to cope with our emotions, so we stuff them. And then the alcohol, it's just like taking the lid off a volcano. Yeah. Everything comes out. You know, if we had a way to process our emotions as they came up so that we didn't have to bottle them up, then, you know, our, and that seems to be what has happened for me is that I've learned a process of handling my emotions as they come up so that I don't feel the compulsion to take a drink or, you know, smoke a joint or whatever, you yeah. know. Don't you think that, you know, dealing with things as they come up is sort of the key and, and having that connection. Yeah. And even before that, for me, it beca- it was a huge matter of self-trust because I spent a lot of my twenties very, very angry and I didn't know how to process that anger. I took it out in all the wrong ways. I stuffed it. It, it manifested as codependence and love addiction and intense fights with my ex. Mm-hmm. So what ended up happening is I was afraid that if I, and it wasn't even like, I wasn't even thinking about getting sober. I was just afraid that if I dealt with all of these emotions and I, and admittedly, some of this, I think was on a subconscious level. I thought that I might explode, like literally spontaneously combust into flames, flames, flames (laughs) on the side of my face, like the movie clue. And it was boiling inside of me. And It took much later to realize what that anger was, which is for another podcast, but I needed to learn how to trust myself that I would be okay if I, and there was like some somatic stuff too. I was so disconnected from my body, which has been a more recent practice of mine and recovery of mine and trusting that my body knows what to do. And that's what emotions is, right? It's like if anyone's birthed the baby or even sneezed, this is your body like doing what it needs to do to maintain homeostasis, to heal to do what it needs to do. Our bodies are so smart and that's what emotions are. And I think that, yeah, that sounds really simplistic, but you know, shrug, that's, that's what is happening. Yeah, no, your your emotions are our guideposts, you know, they're, they're, they're clues and we physically react to things. And I think it, you know, the whole idea of trusting your gut, you know, Mm -hmm. I think we like to people please. And then, dismiss our own emotions to, you know, make other people happy. And, and I'm just curious for you, since you've been sober, how have you been able to, you know, manage your emotions as they come up? Do you use things like exercise or meditation or do you do writing or how are you processing your emotions now? I write a lot. And interestingly, it's come out as poetry. I really never like thought that I would ever be a poet and Amazing. not that I think it's really any, that it's really great right now. I don't show it to very many people that's coming, but it's, it's also you. been shining the light on behaviors that I was doing where I was trying to cover up my emotions. And that's what my second book is about is mm-hmm. about all of these behaviors that so many women do that I still do as well. It's the perfectionism. Like you were mentioning the people pleasing, right. the self-sabotage, the overachieving, <laughs> 
hiding out and isolating. It's all in an effort to stuff the emotions, run away from shame, and try to engineer our life to look and feel a certain way. And then it, it's like it, it works until it doesn't. And that's yeah. what the, my book is about, is about what to do instead. So what that's what it looks like for me. Oh, that's so great. Listen, I know it's coming out January 2nd. Mm-hmm. Uh, really looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Congratulations. on I, I feel like I could talk to you forever, but we are, we're running out of time here. And I would love if you have anything, any last words that you would like to say before we conclude. Well, I have lots of resources on my website. It's odatchat.com. I would love to, you know, I'm I'm also writing a book and and I would love to share what I've learned. And listen, I'm available for help. I mean, I I have people reach out to me asking questions. I don't charge anything. I'm just, you know, it's part of my service is to try to help other people recover so they can email me through the website and ask questions if they have, you know, questions about recovery or anything like that. And You know, I just want to encourage people to continue on that journey of self-discovery. You know, do there are so many teachers. You're a great teacher. There's lots of information, um, loving, kind, empathetic resources for people who are trying to learn how to deal with their emotions so that they don't have to indulge in addiction. So I just want to encourage people to continue seeking and, and look for help and be of service. You know, they say that nothing ensures sobriety like intense work with, you know, other people. So yeah, that'll just be like my final note is to keep seeking. Thank you. Yeah. And we'll link up to all of that in the show notes for anybody who's interested in reading more of that or, or grabbing those links. Thank you so much, Arlena, for being here. I appreciate this conversation. I'm so grateful. Yes. Thank you so much for your platform and for all the work that you're doing. You're doing amazing work. And I just really applaud you for that. Thank you so much. And ass kickers out there listening to these episodes, thank you so much for being here every week with me on the podcast. I appreciate you so incredibly much. If you have not gone and pre-ordered my book yet, I ask you to do that. Those links are in the show notes. And until next time, I will see you all out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. Hey there, Ask Kickers. If you're still with me, first, thank you for listening to this entire episode. And second, I wanted to just shout out a quick reminder about the free book study that I'm offering starting on January 22nd. All you need to do is grab a copy of my book, whether it's on audio or e-reader or an actual hard copy of the book, and join us. You can sign up at yourkickasslife.com slash HTS. FLS. That's an acronym for how to stop feeling like shit. Click on claim bonuses and you can sign up there. Can't wait to see you over there. Hey, ass kickers, you know, it would help me out so much if you left a rating and review for this podcast. Your Kick-Ass Life podcast will always be free to you and to help me get more awesome guests and to spread the word, it helps tremendously if you leave a rating and a review. Now, they don't particularly make this super easy to do, so I'll help you out a little. If you're in iTunes and you're on your phone, when you are in the podcast app, you need to search for Your Kick-Ass Life podcast. I know, even if you're subscribed, This is how you do it. So when you search for it and you see it come up, click on the cover art, then towards the top where it says reviews, click that, scroll down a tiny little bit, and then click write a review. Stitcher is a bit easier if you're on Android. The easiest way I found to do this is to type into Google stitcher.com, your kick-ass life, and voila, my podcast should pop up as the first link. Scroll down and click write a review. That's it. Thank you so very much 
much. You have no idea how much it helps me when you do that. All right. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.